Welcome to In My Backyard, an open conversation about children and mental health. We all know a child who's struggling, whether that child tells us or not. In this podcast, we speak with experts on the many factors of emotional distress in children, how to address those factors, and how to create a community where all children can be healthy and happy. This podcast is made possible through generous donations from supporters and listeners like you. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Your host is Trisha Costales, CEO of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. I'm Trisha Costales, your host of In My Backyard. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the chief executive officer of the Guidance Center, a nonprofit children's mental health agency serving 3,500 children and families every year. Today we're going to have a conversation about the pros and cons of offering our most troubled children intensive field-based treatment over long-term residential placement or hospitalization. This conversation needs to be taken within a historical perspective. As long ago as 1969, the Joint Commission on Mental Health wrote that mental health services for children and families was deficient on all levels, rich and poor, urban and rural concluding that access to timely and effective treatment was not available to most children who needed it. As Albert Chisnowski and his team write, by the early 90s, little had been done to change this dynamic. They concluded that the complexity and severity of the problems of children who have emotional disabilities are extensive, while the system is fragmented with an over-reliance on hospitalization and residential treatment. Residential treatment, while an important part of the system of care, is both highly restrictive and expensive, leaving, they write, few resources available to reinvest in the development of community-based alternatives to traditional residential placement. While current data tragically still shows us that only 25% of the children in the United States who need mental health care actually receive it, at least in California, Real efforts have been made to create community-based programs that can effectively treat our most troubled children without the need for residential care. In 2004, California voters approved Proposition 63, which was signed into law as the Mental Health Services Act, or MHSA. The MHSA levied a 1% tax on all personal incomes over a million dollars, resulting in a substantial investment in mental health for Californians. The intent of the act was to address the urgent need for expanding accessible, recovery-based community mental health services. For today's purposes, we're going to talk about one aspect of the act that allocates funding for intensive and comprehensive field-based care, known statewide as Community Services and Supports, or CSS. According to the Los Angeles County Department of Mental Health, these intensive field-based services are the signature programs of the state's 2004 Mental Health Services Act and a foundational program for an effective community-based mental health system. Intensive field-based programs have been established across the state with the core mission of doing whatever it takes 
to maintain clients in the community and help lead them to a path of wellness. These programs offer very intensive mental health, psychiatry, and case management services in the community. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Vanessa Ayala, an associate clinical social worker at the Guidance Center's Compton Clinic. She is a clinician in the intensive services program and is here today to educate us about treatment for these very high need children and families. Welcome, Vanessa. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. For the benefit, please, of our listeners, will you please just say a few words about yourself? Hello, everyone. My name is Vanessa Ayala, and I have been with the Guidance Center since January 2020. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California, and I received my bachelor's from Cal Poly Pomona and my master's from Cal State LA. And I enjoy working with my community, and I'm very happy to be here today. Oh, thank you, Vanessa. I'm going to jump right in. Um, let's start with intensive services themselves. You know, I think when a lot of people think of therapy, they think coming into an office and sitting on someone's couch for 50 minutes. And, you know, that's not what you do uh, with a lot of your clients. So how do intensive services differ from regular outpatient care? Well, outpatient services are usually aimed to be more short-term services. So they tend to be six months to one year. And these cases usually entail seeing the client one time per week um, to meet their basic needs and tend to be more low maintenance cases, whereas intensive services require more of a higher level of care. So you have increased number of sessions with these clients, often due to risky behaviors and hospitalizations. And um, you see them maybe two or three times per week, and you involve various systems. So that could be the school system, the parents, and the community. So, you know, in these intensive services, they have the mandate actually written into the legislation, whatever it takes. From a practical standpoint, you've said, you know, much more frequent sessions, et cetera. But mm -hmm. what does that mean in terms of sort of how you might attend to a client? Um, well, I think of it as a all hands on deck. So that may be like bringing more team members to um, support the client. So that could be the case manager or the parent partner and seeing them in various settings. So this could be the park, school, the home. Um, usually you seek um, intensive services clients after hours to help them meet their goals. And you engage caregivers and outside support um, in their treatment, even when maybe the caregiver may be disengaged. You know, one key element of the program, though, and you you alluded to some of it there, the after hours piece, yes. is that they are 24-7. Yes. And that's very different from regular treatment. So in theory, well, in reality, mm -hmm. not in theory, if there's mm -hmm. a mental health crisis at 3 a.m., mm -hmm. clinical staff are expected to go in the field and respond with these clients. So talk to us about that expectation. Is that reasonable? Is it scary? Like, how do you manage that without being overburdened or endangered, frankly? Yeah, and, it, and I must say that it is scary, especially when you start, but it gets easier with time. Um, I think it's reasonable because we share the load within clinicians. So we rotate clinicians. Um, it's a voluntary um, 
service for clinicians so you can sign up for it. Um, we have supportive supervisors um, who are always available if needed and we get compensated even for it. So there are a lot of um, uh, benefits to joining um, the intensive services program, the after hours. And not only that, but I also think about the collaboration with clinicians. We always collaborate ahead of time and upload safety plans um, to make sure that we are well prepared to support our families. What kind of crisis might uh, uh, clinical staff have to attend to? Like what would call you out? Um, Self-harm, risky behaviors, right? Um, SI, suicidal ideation. Um, uh, uh, well, those are the most common ones that I have experienced. So um, sometimes it's more de-escalating, but sometimes, you know, you do have to hospitalize and um, having your supervisors to be there to support you whenever needed. I think that's the what really makes it not so burdensome for me. As the CEO of the Guidance Center, speaking to one of my staff, I'm really happy to hear that, that you yeah. guys support each other in that way. That Definitely. that really pleases me. And yeah. sort of following on that, what a nice segue you just gave me is <laughs> the, the next question is about the team approach. So tell yeah. us about the members of the treatment team and what role perhaps each person plays. Yeah, of course, you know, the clinician, um, we focus on the mental health piece, but I must also add that we sometimes have to take the role of the case manager and the parent partner, um, the case manager typically focuses on skill building and linkage to the community to meet the client's goals and the parent the parent partner navigates various systems and supports with linkage to community resources. Um, and lastly, the psychiatrist, uh, we work closely with the psychiatrist, they assess and they provide medication and that helps us too within our treatment. So you, you've talked about uh, navigating systems and linkages. Could you, I know what you mean by that. Mm -hmm. Could you just give our listeners perhaps a few examples of what what navigating systems might mean and then what sort of linkage might mean, what kind of linkages people might provide? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a lot of my um, families who maybe need support with food, right? So it could be um, applying for food stamps or applying for housing and being able to fill out the forms or being able to get, you know, create an account. Those are some of the resources our families often need and that they struggle with um, maybe because they weren't modeled, you know, how to do this growing up. And a lot of the times maybe um, uh, they feel hopeless because they need these basic necessities and they don't know how to access them. So um, sometimes the case manager or even the clinician will go um, to their home, sit with them in front of a computer, create an account and fill out the application or maybe do a three-way phone call where they have to ask a question that they don't know how to ask and you prep them for that, you know, and empower them in that way. So then when they do um, and services, they're able to do it on their own. So really I, I see it as preparing them to have like a successful future. So you're addressing the mental health issue, but mm -hmm. you're also trying to help get the family to a place of self-sufficiency. Yes. In other words. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what we mean by parent partner? Like, who are these people? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the parent partner has various roles. Um, parent partner can help 
obviously with linkage, like I mentioned with maybe outside resources, the parent partner can also support um, in maybe um, obtaining academic resources, for example, um, IEP services, tutoring for the client or testing for the client. Um, the parent partner could also work on um, helping mom ask questions or or dad ask questions of family, the caregiver. I think that's really important. A lot of our parents um, feel afraid of um, the various systems, maybe because of their experiences in the past. So really empowering them to be able to advocate for their for their children. I think that's one key thing. I, I think a neat thing about uh, parent partners is that by definition, they're a parent who had a mm -hmm. child who was somehow involved in the system. So I feel like they help us link or they help give us credibility to these families um, because they are, I think, understandably disenfranchised from systems. So Definitely. having a parent partner that says, hey, I get it. Mm -hmm. um, I think probably helps with the engagement. So Definitely. I think it's an exciting element of our intensive services program. Definitely. So we talked about that, but how all of our clients at the guidance center are high need um, yes. or they wouldn't be at the guidance center, but specifically how did the family, like, let's say a client comes in, what, what do you look for to decide this is a client or a family that needs intensive services versus this one's one that's going to do okay in regular outpatient? How, how are they different? What goes into that decision-making process? Well, I think that intensive service clients come with very complex um, struggles. Um, often, you know, our families struggle to engage because of maybe the lack of trust in the various systems. So it requires a lot of rapport building with intensive service clients and their families. Um, you have to meet them where they're at. Um, it, it, it takes longer due to the generations of traumas that they have been passed on to their children. So it could be more complex than regular outpatient services. So I think that's um, the key thing is really meeting them where they're at. One of the unique things I think about these intensive services uh, programs that came out of the Mental Health Services Act is that they do come with dedicated dollars, uh, number one, to give the parents their own individual treatment, and number two, to, when it's necessary, provide basic financial support to the family. I'd love to hear how important these dedicated dollars are to the care. Perhaps you can give me an example of um, maybe where a parent might benefit from their own treatment. Yes, definitely. Um, I think it is very important to have these dedicated funds. It gives the clinicians the flexibility with service time. We're able to see the clients and their families more than one time per week to support them in meeting their goals, which is needed due to the complex issues families come with. And um, I have various um, examples that come to mind where parents benefited from these funds. I'm thinking particularly of my parents with traumas that come to mind. Um, process a parent's trauma can help support the family unit. I find that sometimes the parent's trauma is the key variable to meeting their child's needs. So family healing can be very empowering and help the parent and the child. And we're able to do that through these dedicated dollars. I 
I can't agree with you more in what you just said. When I saw clients, my uh, area of expertise was uh, children who've been sexually abused. And this, you know, predated when these, these kinds of dollars existed. Parents didn't have access to care. I can't tell you how many times I thought, wow, I could do so much more work with mm-hmm. this family if I could just get this poor mom her own treatment. Right. And I think it's great that we can. But, you know, on the other side, we also have these flex funds that help us uh, give basic financial support sometimes. Mm-hmm. I know what they come in for because I signed those checks. <laughs> but could you give a few examples of, of when you've used them for a client? Yeah, definitely. I've I can think that all of my families have benefited from flex funds. Um, Flex funds help families meet their basic needs, but not only that, I think it also helps them explore interests and identify positive outlets. I think of clients who I provided a bed for, right? So having a bed can help a family feel reassured to have a place to sleep or having clothing, for example, can increase a child's confidence to go to school Um, or having sport equipment can reinforce a positive outlet for clients. So often I find that these funds provide hope to families to maybe at that time that they feel super hopeless. I, I, I think it's so very important. And I hope the listeners heard what you mentioned about the bed that, mm-hmm. you know, even how many of our clients who've never slept in a bed, right. Um, and when we can buy them a mattress, at least mm-hmm. it, it does have such an impact on the child's then mm-hmm. mental health and Definitely. outlook on life and, you know, things that we take for granted that, right. that are really powerful to these families. Mm-hmm. In an earlier episode, one of our earlier ones, we visited a residential treatment program and we learned quite a lot about the value of those services too for uh, youth or the kinds of kids that would really struggle holding a straight path if they return to their homes or their communities. Uh, How do we, you know, we talked about how you decide between regular outpatient and intensive. How do we decide between intensive and residential? Yes, um, I do think that there's benefits to residential care if a client has no natural supports and maybe if there's like a safety concern. So um, I do think that uh, maybe a, a more intense structure could be helpful for um, clients who maybe that's the last option to feeling safe. And um, but, you know, at the same time, I also would um try intensive services before restricting environment. Um, Intensive services does have a lot of um, uh, different areas of support. So I think really finding ways to find maybe those natural supports through these services would be very beneficial for the client. Um, And to also just empower and and increase um, hope for these clients maybe that have lost it at that time. So to take a shot first at shoring up the family to see if they can, and the child, the client, to see if they can Mm -hmm. grow into being that supportive structure, at least try that first before we move on to residential. Yes. That, I mean, that makes sense. It's a big step to remove a a youth completely from their community. Mm -hmm. Could you share with us uh, just a case story? A case story? Uh A case where you've had success using uh, this intensive approach with a family? 
I've had a lot of families. I particularly am thinking of one um, who I had two siblings under uh, on my caseload and who needed very high um, um, services, high intense services. Um, I would meet the family, the mom, the dad, the, the siblings, um, and even their caregivers um, throughout the week, multiple times per week, sometimes during after hours. And I, I remember meeting them sometimes at the laundromat or at the supermarket or even at work, depending on, you know, where they, they were at that time. Um, I helped them to um, navigate various systems like the court system. I think that they had a case open at that time. So we met a lot um, outside of court or at the schools and community. And I even used flex funds with the family to address the safety concerns during that court proceeding. Um, and I think that that was really empowering. And I just think about, again, you know, the whatever it takes approach. And that's kind of a, um, an example of a whatever it takes approach, right? Meeting the clients where they're at. And luckily, we have this, these intensive um, services to help them meet those needs. Uh for our clarification by court, do you mean uh, fam- uh, dependency court, children's, uh, children's supportive services court? Yeah. Yes. And more so preparing them for what that's going to be like, right? Preparing them um, on how they can cope when um, they see the judge or maybe they see the perpetrator and really being able to be there after, right? To be able to process and reflect on what that was like. And I think that intensive services gives us the opportunity because we're able to meet them multiple times a week, wherever the need is. Were they ultimately able to graduate from treatment with you? Yes, they were able to graduate from treatment. And very, uh, I think this is one of the families that I will always take you know, this story with me because it was a, a really long journey for them. And the end result was positive. Like they say, exit, that was a successful, you know, ending yeah. to treatment. So I always, they're empowering other people too with their story. And I think that's, that's what I'm taking from um, this family. That's wonderful. We do have families that stick with us forever. I, <laughs> I have several for sure. While home-based mental health brings many advantages, including the opportunity to better assess the family and home environment, greater accessibility for the client, and a chance for in vivo interventions, it also brings a number of real disadvantages and potential pitfalls. As Dr. Ofer Zur writes, these include a more complex set of boundaries in a fluid and unpredictable setting, role confusion, Is the clinician a therapist or a guest? Exposure to community violence, especially after school and work hours. Lack of privacy. Potential for unwelcome intruders, such as an intrusive neighbor or abusive partner. And more opportunities to challenge boundaries as clients have more power in the home setting. Safety in particular can be a real concern. At the Guidance Center, and in intensive programs across the state, these services are provided to low-income families living in neighborhoods often strife with community violence, gangs, homelessness, and other crime. At the same time, clinicians in community mental health settings are overwhelmingly female and young. There are real concerns. 
as a clinician, you're a young woman in a field-based program. What do you do to ensure your own safety when you're going out? So before going to a home, especially if it's a new home, I look up the location ahead of time. Um, I coordinate ahead of time with the family to meet outside just to ensure safety. Um, I try to arrive early and park near the home. Um, when I leave their home, I try to have my keys um, ready and try to have my hands clear just so I can go straight to my car. But I think most importantly, you have to be alert of your surroundings at all times. Um, something that I actually strive to do, and I think that with time, I, I this has definitely been very, very beneficial for me, has been um, connecting with the community within, the, within boundaries. So they know that when I come, um, they know who I am and that I'm not a threat. I think that's really important. I would agree. And I'm, I'm glad you take those steps to be safe. I assume your supervisor also knows your schedule. So we know where you are. Exactly. Yes. That, <laughs> that's <laughs> good too. Um, how do you manage the complex boundaries going into a home? Cause it is different. You know, they offer you food or drink, mm -hmm. or maybe the bedroom's the only place there's privacy or, you know, do you have examples of where boundaries were potentially a problem and how you managed it? Yes, I definitely have a lot of those experiences. I try to make sure to set clear boundaries in a respectful and culturally sensitive way with my families. Um, at times, I also gauge the situation to know what their gesture means to them in order to be respectful. Um, I have a particular um, experience with a family who invited me to a family event, a quinceañera. Um, and I had to explain to the family in a way that they understand boundaries, but also that conveys the that conveys that the invite is appreciated. Um, I think that if you recognize and you validate that the family wants the clinician to be part of their celebration, I, uh, it's easier to kindly decline. That's really, I, I love how you put that. Thank you. Um, that, that was a very respectful answer. Um, what would you say, let's say we're speaking to clinicians listening, what would you say to a clinician who's afraid of doing home-based care? What advice would you give about sort of the worthiness of this? Yes. Well, it, it's scary at first. I think it can be maybe uncomfortable, but it does get easier with time. You get familiar with the process. You get fam familiar with the families, the customs, the traditions, the best times to meet the families, and just the whole flow of the field base. And I would say that it's really beneficial for treatment because you're able to see the client and their family in their environment. You're able to see the family dynamic. And overall, you're gaining insight of the person in their environment. And I think that could be very, very um, beneficial to treatment. What might you say, flip side of that last question, to a family that's hesitant to allow a therapist into the home? Because that must feel risky on their part too, right? Definitely, especially if we think about the intensive, you know, clients who maybe have had not the greatest experience with the system, right? So definitely exploring where the hesitation is coming from. You want to explore where it's coming from. Um, and based on what they respond, you want to clear up 
maybe misconceptions of the therapist being in the home and the overall purpose of why the therapist is in the home. Um, you want to highlight, of course, the benefits of having um, house um, visits um, and validate maybe that it's uncomfortable to have someone new in your home and exploring maybe what they need when someone new is coming into their home. So I think that once you have that conversation with the family, maybe they are able to see it from a different view that you're there to support. As always, I end every single one of these conversations on a note of hope. And Vanessa, I appreciate you. You work with the hardest clients in a community-based mental health setting that is literally overwhelmed with hard clients. What gives you the hope to keep doing this work? What are the bright sides for you? It's a lot, <laughs> but I continue. <laughs> I do continue, of course, doing the work because it's rewarding. It's rewarding um, to me to see the clients meet their goals and to see the clients um, to continue empowering the families and just providing to a positive image of mental health is really important. And you know, leading families towards a positive future. I think that's definitely the reason why I continue doing this work. That's what I always say, that we get the joy of watching them get better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty special thing. I can't thank you enough, Vanessa, for joining us in this important conversation and even more so for just doing the incredible work that you do. I, you inspired me today, so I thank you. Thank you. It's my position that by shining a light on these issues, admitting that they are in our own backyards, it will be easier for a struggling child to get some help. Ideally, we can all begin to be kinder and more supportive of each other. In My Backyard is brought to you by The Guidance Center, a children's mental health agency in Long Beach, California. In My Backyard is produced by Trisha Costales and Matthew Murray. Thank you to J. Vincent B. for original music. All other music licensed through Soundstripe. Thank you to our listeners and supporters. Please visit tgclb.org or text HOPE to 562-262-5689 to make a one-time donation or join our Hope and Healing Club to become a monthly donor today. Subscribe to In My Backyard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.